Welcome to the Speakers Collective Meaningful Conversation podcast series. The Speakers Collective is a social enterprise. We work together with a shared commitment to challenge stigma, facilitate important conversations and promote learning on a variety of social issues. To find out more about the Speakers Collective, visit speakerscollective.org. Don't forget to like, subscribe and of course comment. We hope you enjoy this meaningful conversation. Kelly and I are going to chat for about 45 minutes. We're going to share our enthusiasm and love for poetry in, in our different ways, but we'd really love to hear from you. So please put your comments in the chat and we will really hope to address them and, and come to them. So I'm a member of the Speakers Collective and very proud to be part of the Speakers Collective. We've all got shared experience of mental health issues and my own experiences of severe depression. So I'm just going to just explain a little bit about the Speakers Collective. The Speakers Collective is a social enterprise and we work together with a shared commitment to challenging stigma, to facilitate important conversations and promote learning on a variety of social issues. And you can find out more about the Speaker Collective by visiting www.speakerscollective.org. So please do take a look. And there's loads of these amazing, meaningful conversations. So no pressure on me and Pele. <laughs> so welcome. And I'm just going to start by briefly introducing myself and then going to turn to Pele, Pele who's, who's going to do the same. So I'm a former journalist. I worked at the Times newspaper. And in my early 30s, I had the first of two severe depressive episodes and that really changed my life and I've been thinking about mental health and well-being ever since and I work alongside charities I'm an ambassador for SANE and Rethink Mental Illness and Compassion Matters and I've just become an ambassador for The Big Give and we're we're fundraising for mental health charities so I do quite a lot with my charities and I also write and my latest book is about the therapeutic power of poetry so, and now I'm going to turn to Pele. Uh, we first met, we were just chatting, weren't we, Pele? About 10 years ago now, we, we met at the Cheltenham Literary Festival. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to read, to be asked to read the poetry that featured in Rachel's amazing book about her depression, Black Rainbow. Um, and she, to me, is one of the poetic poetry voices in the, in the cultural landscape who actually really knows her poetry what, right way back to George Herbert and beyond. Um, and I was at the Cheltenham Literature Festival reading my, from my collection of poems, The Mistress Account. Um, and it was a rare moment where I'd actually written some poetry. I am actually a poet, but I've been poet in residence at the Royal Academy of Arts, uh, the Tate, um, Teach Shelley House in Rome, and I, for a long time, have been more interested in um, taking poetry off the page and um, looking into the poems and the lives of poets, um, the great poets. Um, I've written some scripts which explore the romantic poets, and I'm currently making films about Keats and Shelley to commemorate their lives and Byron next year. And Rachel kindly put one of my poems in her wonderful book, You'll Never Walk Alone. 
Um, so that's why I'm here today to celebrate this amazing achievement, which is, it's, it's poetry in the round. Oh, Pele, thank you. Funny enough, in my own um, therapeutic work, I'm, I'm, I'm working on giving and receiving and do the maths. If someone gives to you, you must receive because, you know, someone feels good giving and, and actually it behoves us to receive and just allowing ourselves to receive. So I'm not going to bat away all those lovely things, which I would have done when I was younger yeah. and say, you know, stop it, stop it. But um, thank you. Thank you for those those lovely words. And I wanted to chat to Pelle because I think we both believe in the, in the power of poetry, the therapeutic power of poetry and why it matters so much to us in, in different ways. And so I come to poetry as a reader and, and, po and Pelle comes to poetry as a writer and I suppose I just wanted to share a little bit about why I think that perhaps poetry could be part of your mental health toolkit maybe it's not something you've ever thought of and 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 why it it sort of matters so much to me and for that we've actually got to rewind quite a long way and I when I was very severely depressed and I was actually in hospital and I was I was suicidal at that point uh, because I felt so incredibly ill, my anxiety-driven depression came across with these very severe physical symptoms of, of, of racing heart and, and, and nausea and these racing thoughts and very frightening feelings like I was falling and then I was taking a lot of medication and I don't know what, what was happening with the medication or the symptoms and I was having a lot of insomnia and I was in, in sometimes sort of screaming in agony and and I would just sometimes just lie there saying, I, I want to die, I want to die. And my first real introduction to poetry came through my mum and my mum loved poetry. She was that generation that sort of learned poetry by heart and she would be sitting by my bedside and I'd be holding her hand because of this horrible feeling of falling and just kind of grabbing on for dear life. And she started softly repeating this line, and it's actually a line from the Bible, but the Bible's kind of full of poetry, really. And the line was, my grace is sufficient for thee, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I just very softly started repeating this line, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And that was almost like the first stirring of positive will that from feeling so desperate that maybe something would come out of this very dark experience and I would come through stronger. And it was the power of the language, the beauty of the language, the, the gentleness of it, uh, changing the story in my head that actually was beginning to, the beginnings of recovery in my case. Um, and little by little, I turned to other poetic lines and that that was why I think that I became such a sort of evangelist for poetry. And we can talk in more detail about the poems I turned to. But it was that sense of telling myself a different story. And that particular line, my, my strength was made perfect in weakness. And yeah, that that's really why I, I sort of began my poetic journey. And and Pelle, I don't know, maybe, you know, poetry is therapeutic for you in a very different way, or, or maybe not. I mean, when when you're in the creative process, why why does that feel therapeutic to you? Um, I wonder what your thoughts were. 
Yeah, um, I mean, you can only ever talk about where you began, can't you, when you're talking about something as um, ethereal and um, um, almost impossible to define as, as the experience of reading poetry. But, you know, my experience of mental health issues was that I was horribly bullied and abused at my boarding school over about five years. And I went along with it and I just thought it, you know, that I'd just get through. And then when I left and I was about 22, I found Sylvia, a book of Sylvia Plath poems. And my mother had always read me poetry, just like Rachel's mother had read it to her. So it must have had some buoyancy or a feeling of an anchor to it. Anyway, I remember being in all this pain, uh, unexpressed pain, and reading Sylvia Plath somewhere in some subliminal level taught me that you know she could be in pain but she also had this enormous power and that mm. the power was about being able to articulate the pain and that there was this private zone where that could play out and then be communicated in a in a in a liminal way to me sitting there all those years later and um so I then I, I went to uh, to recover I went to Rome um to teach English and I, I took Seamus Heaney's Oxford lectures with me, um, 10 lectures that he gave as professor of poetry at Oxford called The Redress of Poetry. And I remember sitting in my little study and reading every single one and feeling that he was telling me that there was a reason to be a poet, that it was okay to say that's what you were. And um, so I started writing it and it gave me such a release. I mean, I was a powerful individual like we all are and it gave me a space to be that. That, that's that, that, yeah that's so interesting I hadn't I hadn't thought of that idea of um giving you a voice because um and feeling that power because when you when you when you were talking I was thinking my experience of reading people like Sylvia Plath is that I feel less alone there's somebody who's been there but I hadn't thought of that extra dimension that 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 creative process is also a powerful process and it kind of gives you back some kind of agency. Um, and when I was looking around the sort of evidence for the sort of therapeutic power of poetry, it's, it's interesting that probably there's more evidence for writing it uh, in terms of the value of the creative process uh, than reading it. But also another point you made which struck me is that link between the reading and the writing, that they're not necessarily separate, though I very rarely write myself. But in my in my own healing words poetry workshops often by reading then people want to write so it can be kind of connected in that way yes and also um the other thing I really felt strongly was I felt her story you know you're reading these extraordinary works of arts but at the same time you know that she went through this incredible trauma and to me the biographies of these poets is also like a profound liberation because they all went to the edges a lot of them went to the edges of themselves and the edges of their sanity and beyond and you know if you're you're in that canopy of people who've lived bravely and against the odds and i find that's very soothing as well yeah so i think i mean um, how they live yeah, I, I I so agree with that. I mean, in fact, in the in the book, I put all the biographies of the poets, and I and I was amazed how many of them, through the ages, probably not diagnosed for all of them, uh, did suffer from bipolar or depression. So people like uh, George Herbert, the seventeenth century religious poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins. I think uh, 
George Herbert particularly spoke to me because he often has in his poems the two voices in his head. And for me, it kind of summed up in an amazing way how therapy could work and how, as you say, he, he'd gone to the edge. He'd gone to a very dark, very difficult place, but he'd found a gentler and a more compassionate voice in his head. And I think when I was sort of beginning to get better myself, I would bring to mind uh, some of his poems because, I, again, it made sense of what was happening to me. But there's there's one called Love, which uh, I'll, I'll just share a, a, share it with you because it 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 so sums up these uh, his biography written in three verses, really. Um, and you can hear in the poem the two voices in his head: the sort of depressed, not good enough, the guilty voice, uh, but the loving and compassionate voice, which. Uh, I suppose is where I've been trying to get to, to find it in my own head and to find a different story. So th this, this is how love goes. It, it goes, love, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. Yet quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, sweetly questioned if I lacked anything. What I, the unkind, the unworthy, Lord, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. You must sit and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. And for me, that's just such an extraordinary poem because, you know, on the one hand, it's a religious poem. It's about the taking of communion. It's about the sharing of bread. So it is heavy with religious imagery. But even if you're not religious, it just spoke to me of, of that sense of the poet's biography of what was happening in their head and the, the kind of worthless feelings he had but then how through the kind of personification of love, i.e. God, he found a different voice. And, you know, even if you're not religious, I think that that meant an awful lot to me, uh, the different stories there. Wonderful. Um, Rach, would you just talk about, I find it so interesting how you moved from Black Rainbow, I know you wrote some books in between, but to You'll Never Walk Alone. Would you talk a bit about the process of writing um, and um, compiling You'll Never Walk Alone? Because it is such a spiritual journey, isn't it, for all of us? Oh, well, that's thank you. Um, well, I think when I first wrote about my experience in of mental of mental health problems in 2014, I was drawn to poetry, but poetry of consolation and for hard times, really, that that feeling I wasn't on my own. Um, telling myself a different story, often quite difficult poems that I had to kind of be present and unpack the meaning. I think that helped with my anxiety because I couldn't think about the future. I couldn't worry about the past. I had to be present to the poem. And then more recently, four years ago, my mom died. And that was a huge pivot for me in terms of my relationship to poetry because I think the thing she told me when she taught me really as she was dying um i i was with her most of the last year because she lives she lived across the road and she had cancer and i did a lot of um 
uh, I wasn't the only one, lovely siblings, but we, you know, taking her to chemo and she died in my arms. And what was extraordinary about that experience was that she taught me much more about inhabiting joy, despite the sadness of her death. I think that's what she left me with. And I then turned to poems which were much more about joy and lining up with joy and being with joy and allowing joy. And I noticed in myself, it was almost like I'd, I'd stopped my ability to really feel joy. And that's in this new book about poetry, I've I've divided it according to the sort of seasons of our mind. So we have a kind of wintry dark season. So there are still poems that play an important role through through sadness and I need them for difficult moments. But there are also spring-like poems, hopeful poems, summer poems, joyful poems, um, and autumn poems, kind of more reflective poems. And yeah, I think I think this is where I've sort of got to in my psychological journey is trying to allow and be and accept all feelings, but 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 to use the poetry to go deeper into joy and um, kind of be with joy. That There's one that um, maybe, maybe sort of helps kind of explain what I'm saying. It's a, it's a, it's a haiku, so a Japanese poem, a very short poem, but there's something, some, sometimes something to be said for that because you can learn it by heart in a, in a, in a non-stress by, I'm actually looking it up, but I, 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 I know it by heart. I don't know why I'm looking it up. But anyway, it's it's called Step by Set Step. And it's by a Japanese poet called Issa. And it and it's very simple. It just goes step by step up the mountain, suddenly the sea. And for me, there's something about yoking together those experiences, the kind of repetitive kind of walking on through the step by step, the slog up the mountain, but then kind of inhabiting the joy and the kind of extraordinary thing of seeing the sea. And I think another way that my relationship with poetry has changed is that my mother sort of also helped me kind of be in nature and and enjoy nature. And, you know, we know nature's good for our well-being, sort of ideas of biophilia, but so many poets as well find inspiration in nature and and kind of allowing that joy of being in nature so yes I suppose in some ways this second book about poetry it, it is very very different actually um for, for me yeah um um I could ju- I'd just like to add to that um from the writer's perspective um so I, I went to Rome and I I decided I was going to stay there because um, I was happy there and I was writing poetry and I was I felt this sort of aff- affirmative um, sense of self for the first time. And then one day I woke up and I couldn't walk properly and um, day by day I could walk less and less effectively and I, I had to go back to England and I actually had a slipped disc, which meant my Rome days were over. And I was on the f- um, floor in my mother's flat for four months in agony, thinking how the hell could this have happened to me you know I'd found an answer and here I am flung back again into this sort of misery and I applied for Andrew Motion's um, MA at UEA the poetry side of it and um, I got on the course and if I if I hadn't had the slip disc I never would have applied for the course and you know poetry has a strange way of dragging you in a direction that you sort of resent and then 
giving you the solution a, a two years later. Um, and um, when I got in the course, Andrew Motion would say to us, go and write five poems on one subject. And I'd rush to Philip Larkin book of poems and start writing, you know, in the voice of Philip Larkin, because I just thought he was so wonderful. And I'd show the poems to Andrew proudly and he'd say, you're trying to write like Philip Larkin, go away and write like yourself. And I'm, yeah. st I'm still trying to do that to this day. And there is something about having a voice and over your lifetime, refining it. And poetry, I think, to me, reading it or writing it is about making something your own. You know, your, your own thoughts become more enhanced, your own the strength of the language ruminating inside you becomes more resonant and musical. And then that's just a wonderful thing. I, I love that. And actually, I'd love to hear about that amazing poem that came out of that course, partly, I know, the, the mistress's account. But I, I think, yeah, I'd like, like to hear more about that. But even before we come to that, just that idea that you said about, again, that for me, writing poetry and 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 when when people share things they've written that sense as you say that they've got a voice they've got a validity and often I think you know problems with our mental health is sometimes we feel we're shut down either we shut ourselves down or other people have shut us down and, and one of the things that Speakers Collective is is sort of fighting and championing is is to move on from stigma and people being able to be honest and authentic about their experience, but what's truly happening rather than pretending that they're, you know, that they're fine when they're not. And that sense of kind of having a voice, because I think, tell us a bit more, Pelle, about the mistress's account, because that was maybe important for you psychologically, that as a mistress, you're, you're secret, you know, you're not allowed to have a voice, you're, you're shut out, you're not, not, you're not able to be who you really are. Yeah, so I had this terrible experience with a married man when I was um, 40. Um, so it was way after my course, actually. And um, I'd been, you know, doing these residencies at the RA and, and, and focusing on artists and their relationship to poetry. But I'd done a lot of work with Van Gogh and his relationship to poetry. Now, he was a great poetry lover. He, was, he loved Christina Rossetti and John Keats. And I figured he was reading those poets by candlelight at night in his little house in Arles. And then they were running through his veins when he was painting the sunflowers the next day. So, you know, I was distracted by this, these extraordinary magical paradigms of artists and their relationship to poetry. And then I had this experience, which was heartbreaking because I'm, uh, it was it was it wasn't um, sort of socially acceptable what had happened. And also I'd ended up you know, in a terrible state because um, um, it didn't go well in the end. And um, I looked through all the literature that I could think of and there was nothing by a mistress in the whole of literature um, where she'd had a voice and written of her experience. Um, so I decided that I should write some poems about what had happened to me. And for the first time, you know, I'd written very codified, clever poetry. I was quite, used to feel quite pleased that they were quite difficult to understand. And suddenly I just wanted everyone to know this story. And I used poetry to, to break the story open. So the poems became these different, these different, they were different animals. They were accessible. They were um, narrative. They were tragic. And they told the whole story. It's a sort of anti-Cinderella story. It starts off with the nice bit and it ends up, you know, I end up by the ashes in the fire. 
well, it's, it, it's, it's an it's an astonishing poem and and I mean I thought Pele we could share the poem one of your poems that I I chose for my book and I put it in my uh winter section because the way I organized my poetry was this idea that we've got all these different moods the sort of the wintry mood the dark mood but then the spring like as I say more hopeful mood so I put Pele's poem into the winter section because it is in a way a heartbreaking poem but Lots of people who've read the book have said that they also have found consolation in that because you, you'll hear at the end of the poem, there's a sort of a, a, a moment of hope, uh, a kind of more upbeat moment. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I'll also share what I wrote about it because in a way I feel that people don't necessarily think poetry could be part of their uh, toolkit. You know, they feel put off by it and I love to communicate why I'm enthusiastic about a poem so anyway this is this is Pele's poem it's called Afterwards by Pele Cox he says it would be good to find a woman as bright as me she uncurls thinks not unlike burial lying here before light comes. The room so black a charcoal smear, their limbs bare, him, her, ash, bone, a cigarette. And where on earth to go from here? So, so this is what I wrote about Pele's poem. The poem's title, afterwards reads as its first line. This gives the feeling that we're already in the middle of the poem, spectators arriving after the action. We do not really know what is going on. We feel as if we're spying on the lovers, barging into an intimate postcoital scene. We feel even more uneasy because we instantly hear something cruel said out loud that was not meant for us and we do not know why it is being said. The seemingly innocent reflective tone of the, it would be good to find a woman as bright as me, amplifies the, uh, which is not italicized, you can't see the poem, but on the page is not as italicized, unlike the rest of the poem, as if discussing a sensible romantic strategy on which we can all agree, amplifies the line's true brutality devastating both for the intellectual arrogance of the speaker and the casualness of his rejection of his lover. The woman herself takes a moment to respond. We wait, shocked at what we've unwittingly heard, as the female lover uncurls herself, adjusting physically to this new reality. Only in the next line do we understand that she too understands fully the unkindness and the finality of what has been said. It is as a body blow, as good as a death sentence, not unlike burial. The woman's emotional reality is reflected in the room's bleakness. What should be filled with images of post-love-making warmth and bliss is drained of any colour or light, just as charcoal is wood burnt to blackness. The imagery is ambivalent. A post-coital cigarette becomes dangerously confused with ashes, or even human remains. Human limbs become worrying close 
to the bones of dead bodies. In a few talked words and images, Cox conjures up the exact moment and feel of heartbreak and the bewilderment that follows the collapse of an entire cosmology. But in her acknowledgement that the relationship is over, we can take some hope, a hope first hinted at in the first verse with its line, before light comes, the darkest moment is just before dawn. Yeah, so I do, I congratulate you, Pele. I think it's an amazing poem and I have shared it with people faced with that moment when they realise the relationship's over and how do they move on from there? But I don't know if you felt it, you you felt, you talked about that power, you know, the Sylvia Plath, the kind of the power of writing your your experience. Yeah, I mean, to me, the power of writing a poem um, in the moment of writing it is something about the ink on the on, from the pen onto the page that you're using your hand to move move it along, and there's some strange alchemy in that because you're creating a distance from your emotional trauma, but you're also bringing yourself closer to it and giving it words and articulacy. And, you know, that is not a complicated thing to do. It's very simple. Um, it, just, it's a, it just takes a space, a meditative space and a self-belief in, you know, the, the ability to put one word after another and to be as true to that feeling using simple phrases as you possibly can. And um, well, that's, that's actually, that's marvellous advice to anyone's listening who, who's sort of thinking they might like to write poetry. Have you got other thoughts on, on the actual creative process? Because maybe some people will think that's a bit off-putting. Yeah, I mean, I, I teach, um, I have a lot of students and um, the first thing that I, I tell them to do is to bring three poems that they like um, to me like, you know, like gifts. And um, that to me is 50% of where, where their voice is at before they've put pen to paper, because I can read immediately from what they've chosen, where they're coming from as poets. And I, you know, I don't think a poet is someone who writes great poetry who gets published. A poet is someone who's connected to the poetic form and wanted to take it on themselves. And then after they've read them out loud, you know, the or you know, the oral tradition is a really, really healing, powerful um, compromise before you put the pen to paper. You read out a great poem and you're halfway to writing better to writing one yourself. And then I ask them to do a speed write for five minutes without, you know, without even thinking or taking their pen off the paper. You know, if I say if you come to the word tree and you can't think of the next word, just keep writing tree, tree, tree until another word comes. And that's where a poem starts, not in some high minded idea. It's yes. that's not the beginning. So in my in my um, workshops, we, we when they're more like reading groups. We'd share four or five poems, but often. Uh, they people also do want to write and another thing that I think that people have found helpful is the some of the Julia Cameron ideas I'm sure you know about her the the morning pages um, the artist's way yeah wonderful yeah the artist's way so this sort of idea that your inner critic is sort of least active first thing in the morning so when you first wake up just to write very freely and stop that critic sort of trying to shut you down and and you're not all those not good enough voices and so yeah, I love that. 
Yeah, make a mess. You know, it's you know, you're reading the finished finished article, aren't you? When you read a poem in a book or you hear a poem said out loud, but that's not where the beginning is. The beginning is unleashing all your feeling, and then fifty percent of time after that is when you start to hewn it back and make it into something that looks like a poem on the page. I mean, Keats wrote out Ode to a Nightingale straight out onto the page. I think there's two corrections on that that um, ode. But, you know, he was thinking in that poetic way a lot and reading a lot of poems and he had a discipline. Um, he'd been writing for a long time before he was able to do that. You know, it's not, what you see isn't where you start. That's, that's such a good thought. And I just thought if we could talk a little bit about sort of practical ideas as well, sort of if you're reading a poem, I mean, maybe this is more my, well, we're both readers. I'm not a writer, but we're both readers as well. Like, you know, if you if you feel like you haven't understood something or it something's really inaccessible, I just thoughts about reading. I mean, I think for me, um, I I think when I was younger and at school, I was much more kind of, het up on the idea that I didn't understand something and I'd say that one of the ways that poetry has become much friendlier and easier and more accessible is that that's okay you don't have to understand everything and sometimes a poet is trying to convey the the mystery of things that not everything is understandable and I find that actually very helpful so sort of sometimes like you know why was I so ill well I'm not even you know, I've got lots of reasons. I was really stressed. I worked in a newsroom. There was a lot going on. I told myself a lot of negative stories. But, you know, if you go to the Royal College of Psychiatrists website, they've got six or seven different reasons for why you might suffer depression. And I think as I've got older, I'm more interested in sort of mystery, confusion, uncertainty. Mm. And so sometimes now when I read a poem, if I don't understand it, I don't sort of panic. I can sometimes just almost experience it on a physical level. Um, and someone like Gerard Manley Hopkins, who I absolutely love, it's a, it's a feeling experience um, as much as a kind of understanding experience, if that makes any sense. Um, uh, I've got a few. Um, while I find a Gerard Manley Hopkins, I might just leave you, Pele, to share some thoughts on, um, on sorry, noisy stepping near me. Um, um, yeah, just your thoughts on reading and how to. I think you have to be very. Moment. Yeah. You can be very intuitive about how you approach the big, the poetry experience, you know, and um, flicking. If you look through Rachel's book, that you'll be sure there'll be at least five or six poems in there that jump out at you immediately. Just go with those poems and let them be your companions. You don't have to make friends with every single poem in a book. And um, Rachel's right, sometimes a, a poem comes over you for no apparent reason and you don't quite understand it, but you can't let it go. That's a strange, curious friend. And, um, you know, they'll last a long time in your life if you just keep with them. Um, yes, I, I, I like that point, actually. I find that um, sometimes I just read and read and read and read again. And like, for example, the Herbert that I, sh I shared, there's a line about it, about who made the eyes but I. So it's a pun, you know, the eyes as in our eyes, with which we see, but it's also the eyes as in 
people. And I mean, I must have read it about 20 times before I, I sort of realized, um, you know, that that's, that was what was happening in that exact line. But that was okay. A poem can give up its gifts to you in a kind of slow way, if, if that makes any sense. Um, I'll just, this is the Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's called Pied Beauty. And it, it's such a sort of physical experience almost listening to it. I'll just read the first verse because it's, it's uh, yeah, you'll, you'll get such a sense of it. Glory to be God. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple colour as a brinded cow, for the rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim. Fresh far coat, chestnut falls, finches win, wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow and plough, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. So what I said about that was this uh, amazing way that he evokes beauty. How do you evoke beauty and how do you capture the beauty of movement, trout that swim? with something as static as words. Hopkins does it by playing with language in a way that embodies this sense of flux and through compound words, which we don't immediately understand, such as couple color, rose moles, chestnut falls and fresh farkle. The effect is to speed up our reading. One action follows another in quick succession to the point where we feel the world is constantly on the go. But my point there being that we don't necessarily instantly understanding it, but understand it, but but that's okay when when we read it. Um, Pelle, we've got about another sort of five minutes or so. When I I thought we could share a few thoughts about memorizing poetry and why that can be helpful for people. I think my own experience of that is that you've got to know them absolutely backwards, forwards, upside down, inside out, because otherwise I get quite stressed by learning them by heart. If that makes any sense, um, but I love the fact that. The poems I do know by heart, like if it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm feeling desperate, I've got words inside me that I can turn to. And I don't know if you also learn poetry by heart, and if that's something that you find helpful. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, like I said, you taking poetry off the page is a really healthy way to, to start a friendship or a love affair with it. And, you know, that is the simplest way to remove it from the, you know, the black text and the hard covers. And um, you really marry a poem when you learn it off by heart. I mean, I only really know one, apart from the ones I've written myself. And um, it's by Christina Rossetti. It's one of her sonnets from the Portuguese. And you only really need to know one. You know, you don't need to have a whole sort of anthology of learned poems. I mean, that's it's enough for me just to know that I know that one because I, I adore it and it's a sonnet and it helps me because it's a sonnet form. So it's brought me closer to how that form actually ticks, although I'm terrible at writing sonnets. But if you know, if you're interested in the poetic form, learning a poem by heart really, really helps crack that for you. And then when you read poems on the page after that, you feel they're much lighter, you know, they're like light pastry, aren't they, when you know how a form ticks. So I highly recommend it. Will, will you share the Rossetti with us? I'd love to hear you. And, and by the way, I'm like you. I only know about, I probably know two or three. And a lot of them are haikus because they're so short. But I don't want it to be stressful learning them by heart. But sometimes repeating things or just repeating that one line is also very therapeutic and calming. And you might not need more than one line. Like, you know, my strength is made perfect and weakness. 
but tell it share the Rossetti with us sure um yeah and also I think it's the the oral and verbal equivalent to speed writing actually now I come to think of it learning a poem off by heart because you are falling into something you're losing your your rational grip and so it takes you into a place that you know is about letting go and that's also really healthy I think um okay um it's a love poem it's for Robert Browning of course who she loved deeply um go from me yet I feel I shall stand henceforward in thy shadow Nevermore left to stand alone on my threshold, the threshold of individual life, shall I command the uses of my soul, nor raise my hand serenely in the sunshine as before, without the thought that I forbore thy touch upon my palm. What I do and what I dream include thee, as the wine must taste of its own grapes. And when I sue God for myself, he hears that name of thine and sees within mine eyes the tears of two. Wow, that, that's amazing, Pele. Just tell us a little bit more by why, why that, you know, of all the poems in your whole life as poetry, why you chose that poem you made the point about its form, but tell us a bit more about the content and why it means so much to you. Well, I mean, it sounds whimsical because I should have learned hundreds hundred since then, but it was like that was the poem I wanted to get married to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I like being married to that one. It's so yeah. wonderful. I don't need well, it think... in my memory. Well, it goes very deep, doesn't it? You know about connection, connection with yourself and connection with somebody else. And yeah. I suppose that there was a theme running through all poems that I've sort of used therapeutically and in, in, in the new book as well. They're, they're really about connection. Um, and also you don't need many. You know, poetry isn't a greedy thing. It's the opposite. It's yeah. it is as thin and meagre and economical as you like, and it will still remain, you know, it will still be a presence. Um, that's that's so lovely so we we have talked a bit about writing we, we've talked a bit about reading talked a bit about memorizing and in with my old with my sort of old reporter's times hat on I've I've, I've noodled around all the the data and, and actually it's very interesting because you know there's always a, a a search for for things that people find helpful and you know medication can be absolutely essential but people also want other things and a lot of the research now is is in other approaches, whether that's biophilia and you know being in nature or some of the nutritional studies. And there are studies now about the therapeutic power of the arts. And I found studies about why reading is helpful, why writing is helpful, why memorizing is helpful. Um, really lovely work about also developing empathy for others, you know, understanding other people's emotional reality. Even a really nice practical thing is that if you want to share what you're feeling, but you don't feel well enough to explain it, you could sort of give somebody a poem. I remember doing that with an Anne Sexton poem, uh, which is a very dark description of, of, of feeling desperate, but it was a shorthand. So there's just so many different ways to... Which one was it, Rach? Oh, I've got it in the book, actually. It is, uh, it is very... 
it's very very strong it's um it's called where's it gone hang on a sec can't remember the sickness unto death and it's got a terrible i think the line that really spoke to me and again maybe your point you don't have to be sort of um you can be there's there's a sort of spaciousness to poetry you don't necessarily need very much of it one line can tell you so much but there's this one line about falling and i remember that was my experience and it's got this line here um i kept saying i've got to have something to hold on to um and then people gave me bibles crucifixes a yellow daisy but i could not touch them and i remember that feeling of falling and wanting something to hold on to anyway it is a very a very dark dark poem um we've got loads of comments in the chat and just having a quick look um from john just to see uh if i can scroll back to see some comments um i don't know if i can still be heard i i use poetry to get my thoughts and feelings out this is tim this is great and i often write least self-consciously before bed interesting so these things are released on paper rather than keeping me up at night i love that um First thing in the morning, you know, the idea of one's vulnerability first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And often I have terrible worries in the night. Um, question for Pele. How, from Tim, how do you feel the way you use your poetic voice has changed over time or with your experience since you started writing? Curious to hear. Hope that's not too vague or awkward as a question. Um, Pele, over to you. Did you hear that all right? Yeah, no, that's a brilliant question. That makes me feel like a real poet, <laughs> a serious one at that. Yeah, I started off thinking I needed to be really clever and um, sound clever, and uh, maybe I did sound quite clever. And then um, about 10 years after that, because of this experience that brought about the mistress account, I remember I showed some of my early poems to an experienced poetry creative writing teacher from America, and he said, Pele, stop trying to write poetry with a capital P. <laughs> write it with a small P. And um, oh, that just says, speaks volumes, doesn't it? And I immediately knew what he meant and clicked, and I just became myself in the poems. I, when I say myself, I, I stopped trying to sound like something. I just sounded like the thing that I was feeling and used language to, words to express it. I think language is quite, you know, you get netted up in that language because it makes you feel you need to write language. You just need to write words. Yeah. I hope that makes some sense. And now, of course, I don't really write poetry very often at all because I'm wrapped up in making films and focusing on the great poets which um, like Rachel, you know, we're converts to just lapping up the genius. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another, some really nice here, something Dor Dorota, Dorota, I'm not sure, I hope I pronounced your name right. I refer to my art and poetry as trapping demons on the paper. That I think that's, um, Wonderful. that's, that's a really great phrase. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, and, and Pele, you made that point by literally the ink spilling on the paper. Somehow you create a bit of distance, which both allows you a kind of perspective, but somehow it kind of allows you to be with the feeling, but in a way that it's sort of charge and intensity isn't so kind of overwhelming in a way. 
Um, yeah, it's a bit like leaping up out of bed, isn't it? It's like, oh, I must get out of bed, get out of this feeling, and I'm going to, you know, jump in the shower or put some clothes on or go for a run, and picking up a piece of paper and a pen can be those things as well, just starting to write. Yeah. Stepping out of the front door. Yeah. And there's another there's another really nice comment. And in fact, Marion, I think it's just put a new 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 comment in there. But Marion, I think you mentioned this idea. Um, and by the way, if anybody wants to jump in and talk live, I'm just reading off the chat. But please, please jump in. We're all we're all we're all here together to to share. But uh, Marion's point that this idea of kind of being present centered and being mindful and being in that moment. And I and I think. Maybe that's a way for me that sometimes the difficulty of a poem is is part of its virtue because it it requires a focus and it requires a presence uh, to be there and sort of unpack the meaning. And I remember somebody describing anxiety as regret and you're in the past and you're looking backwards and and depression is um, other way around. Sorry, depression is regret and looking back and anxiety is worrying about the future. But if we can be more present centered and just be with whatever's coming up for us right now, right here, which is, I suppose, you know, the principles of mindfulness. But but poetry can do that. It can it can allow us to be really present centered. Yes. There's somebody jumping in here. Is that Shelley? No, that's what I was talking about, Kelly, Rachel. That's precisely because you were saying something. I can't remember what it was now, but that's what it made me think of that to be in the present moment you know you don't have those worries and um you know you can't you can't do anything about yesterday it's gone you can't do anything about tomorrow it's not here but you can live in the present moment and something you said about the poetry earlier on uh, spurred me on to think of that that's why I wrote that comment oh well, yeah. it, it, it's a lovely comment and, and I think a lot of us struggle with being present-centered and maybe again poetry is something that you might not have thought of but it can it can just what, what was that phrase? Pin you to the page. Yeah, yeah, in fact, I think, you know, part of the thing about um, depression and anxiety and pain is that we don't want to let it go un, unnoticed. We don't want to just neglect it and, and it, for it to dissolve into thin air. And a poem is a way of marking and celebrating the agony. I always thought of a poem like a bit like a butterfly, you know, like you said, pin it. You do yeah. like pinning a butterfly, the butterfly of your pain onto the page, and then you can walk away from it. And it's still there. So you haven't like you haven't thrown it in the bin or anything. Yeah. And it, cap it captures them. Sorry, Rachel. No, after you. No, just I was getting that what you resist persists. So sort of allowing and being with it can help. Sorry, after you, Marion. Yeah. No, that's fine. It just, I was just thinking it captures that moment, doesn't it? Poetry and words capture that moment that you're in. And whether it's um you know what whatever emotion that you've got you capture it there in that moment hopefully I mean words never do it justice obviously but they do something Pelly's and, and Pelly's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Pelly would say they don't quite do it <laughs> yeah I definitely would <laughs> <laughs> as a writer nobody, I understand hopefully that. nobody notices that <laughs> <laughs> they capture they capture something they capture yeah. something of the essence of it which yeah, is they, what it's the way of loving do. it isn't it yeah yeah. Thank you. Tim, did you want to jump in there? Um, sure, yeah. I wasn't really sure whether to jump in or not. It feels very like timely tonight because I've spent the last week um 
watching like mindfulness documentaries by like one of the co-founders of Headspace. And there's so much tonight that's kind of tying in with that, you know, about how um, in order to capture like a feeling or um, a moment in time, you have to be you have to be present in that moment and not be backtracking into the past or thinking forward too much into the future. Um, but I think what's really interesting tonight is like hearing about your um, the poets which have really inspired you. I mean, I was just reading up, um, Rachel, about, you know, your your book about, you know, poetry to get you through hard times in a way. Um, yeah. and, and and Pele, what you were saying about um, what gave you like a lot of creative inspiration, like I, because I'm quite recent to poetry, but I um, came to it through needing it to get through like a difficult time. Um, and I found it just kind of explodes out of you really, like it kind of wants to get out. I'm not sure if your experience has kind of been the same. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't find it to be a self-conscious or a pretentious process at all. It just kind of, um, it's kind of like boiled over like a big kettle, if that makes sense. <laughs> See, there's a great poetic metaphor there, right there. <laughs> and, and have you shared your poems or have you, have you just been more writing for yourself? Um, no, I've, I've shared them. Um, in the first instance, I didn't really have anywhere to share them. I was living in a foreign country at the time, and this started during the um, pandemic. Um, so I just kind of ended up putting them on Facebook. And then I was surprised by how many people, um, regardless of um, age, gender, background, like people just started reading them and commenting on them and kind of said, well, put them in a book. So I, I worked with a guy who's an amazing photographer. We made a book. And um, last year I started performing, which was really cool. So I'm kind of... It's nice to be in that sphere now. And the nice thing is when you go along, um, obviously you get a bit nervous at being at the mic or whatever, but the nice thing is you get to hear what other people are turning up with. Um, and it's always awesome because um, people turn up who've got like no profile. It's not like seeing George Clooney at an event and they'll just stand up and the power of what they've got to say can really knock the wind out of you, you know? Um, so yeah. I, I, so I, uh, I, really, I really like that point. I think there's something very democratic about poetry there's something it's not hierarchical it's uh somehow it's because each voice is so individual and valid and for me that's so um part of its absolute power we've got quite a few more few more comments in the chat for me writing poetry i have i don't know i'm not sure there's probably a better way to do this for me writing poetry where's where's that one helps me to reduce the noise in my head I love that. It is like giving a form, it gets acknowledged, and then the thoughts shut up for a moment. That is lovely. Uh, I don't know if, Dorotev, Dur I don't know if I pronounce your name right, or if you want to say anything more, but that's, that's such a lovely, that's a, such a lovely sentiment. Um, we're sort of coming to the end of our hour. I don't know, it's gone so fast, Pele. You and I, we like to chat. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's been lovely having some other people on board for once. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think there are more poetry lovers out there, and I think it's it's beginning to be recognised in a more scientific way. I suppose. I suppose it's it's as old as time. You know, Apollo is the god of poetry, the god of medicine. You know, the ancient the ancient uh, Egyptians they used to dissolve poetry write wrote poetry on papyrus and dissolve it in water and swallow it uh you know as a healing thing and then mm -hmm. benjamin franklin when he builds his first library he he proposes 
poetry and reading as a cure for 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 all ailments of of the mind. Um, and then you've got people like Freud and all the psychotherapists in the 20th century using poetry therapy. And I think so. On, on the one hand, it's as it's as old as time, but on the other hand, it's it's been understood in a kind of more modern way. And and we've got the proof now. We don't we don't really need the proof, but we've got it if we want it. Yeah, I think Rachel, um, your book is you know it's not just about for me, just not just about writing my own poetry and having my own voice. It's about it's been about learning what poetry actually is made of, you know. And of course, it's made of all the people that have been poets and read poetry and loved poetry. And, you know, almost understanding what poetry is, is as nice as reading poetry itself. And um, Rachel's book really helps you to understand what poetry is, you know, its history, its function, you know, the voices and hearts and souls behind, behind it, you know. Oh, well, thank you. I, I mean, I have tried to, having said that you don't always have to understand it, it is nice. It can be nice to be both. So I've tried to write about the poets and what what they were thinking and feeling and being and and the poems themselves but look it's been fabulous thank you very much everybody for joining us oh a few clapping that's really lovely um and yeah keep writing and keep sharing it, um thank you all very very much indeed thank you thank you for listening to this meaningful conversation to find out more about the Speakers Collective, visit speakerscollective.org and don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on this podcast. Thank you.